in a September 8, 2020 article from Christianity Today called The State of Theology, Evangelicals Hold Steady on Doctrine, More Outspoken on Politics, it talks about the doctrine of the Trinity and several other results that cause me to think we can have a series on this. <laughs> so this is the third and final episode of this three-part series, and I titled it, Is the Holy Spirit just a force, or is he a personal being? If this interests you, stick around. Welcome to WCKS, where we can't keep silent about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome back to the channel. It is so awesome to have you back with me. I do want to apologize for the long delay uh, between the last post, which was the second of this three-part series, and this post. But I am your host, Michael Russell, and in today's episode, as noted in the teaser, we will be finishing our short series um, related to the doctrine of the Trinity and the essential doctrines to believe within Christianity. Once again, today's episode is called "The Holy Spirit." Is the Holy Spirit just a force, or is he a personal being? So let's get into our discussion today. As we did for the previous two posts in this uh, message. We will be referring to the article from Christianity today. Now, it is in the the link is in the description of this um, today's episode. The th- the statistics that provoked my interest in today's episode have to do with the Holy Spirit. Once again, a reminder that the survey conducted by Lifeway Research in association with Legionnaire Ministries has been conducted in much the same way every two years since 2014. This survey was done in September of 2020. At least it was released. The article was released. So right now I am recording in August of 21. So it's been a bit of a delay. um, But the statistics relate to a survey that was done. So these are still good statistics, though they are a little bit out of date. So... As noted in the article, respondents were nearly unanimous in affirming that God is a perfect being. 97% believe of evangelicals that are identifying themselves as evangelical Christians, 97% believe that God is a perfect being, that God is a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 96%, and that God cares about our day-to-day decisions, 87%. However, a bit later in the article, we read, quote, Similar confusion prevails when it comes to the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Theologians we queried were pre- um, after previous surveys lamented the fact that today's Christians do not seem to understand the Spirit very well. Things do not appear to have improved with this year's crop of results. Just under half of evangelical respondents, 46%, believe that, quote, the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being, end quote. So 46% of those associating themselves as evangelical Christians believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being, okay? It goes on and says, this is down from previous years, so it's actually getting better, 
In 2016, there were 56% that believed the Holy Spirit was a force and not a personal being. And in 2018, it was up to 59%. But this year, this 2020 survey, it was down to 46%. So I guess you can argue it's moving in the right direction. However, I continue with the article. Furthermore, while 78% of evangelicals do not think that the Spirit can instruct someone to do something that goes against Scripture, 18% do. Okay, so though a majority do not believe the Holy Spirit will say anything or or drive a person to do something against what Scripture says, clearly, 18% do, and they are confessed or professing evangelicals. So that's nearly one in five, and that ratio remains consistent with the results of the 2018 study, and I end that quote. There are several passages throughout Scripture that discuss the Holy Spirit, some more obvious than others. But in the article, it deals with a couple of key characteristics that are important to understand about the Holy Spirit. That believe differently would suggest you have an aberrant or heretical or false view of the Holy Spirit. This is the focus of this episode. The three areas that I want to address specifically are the personality of the Holy Spirit, the deity of the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit is God, and that God cannot do anything contrary to God. That seems a little uh, maybe adolescent, but it follows that if the Holy Spirit is indeed God, God can't go against God. Can't God, you know, can't contradict God. God is perfect. Okay. So let's set a couple baseline understandings here, and I will be referring loosely to Charles Hodge's systematic theology in some of this, simply because he has articulated it so well. But throughout Scripture, Old Testament to New, when you see phrases such as the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God or the Spirit or when God speaks as my spirit or when God is spoken of as his spirit, which in any of these forms occurs throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, they are all to be understood to mean the Holy Spirit of God, one and the same. And others like phrases that I didn't mention that are clearly talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, God the Spirit, things like that, okay? So kind of a level setting. So as examples, during the creation narrative, when the Spirit of God moves over the waters, or when the Spirit of God is seen in Moses' time as a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire before the Israelites during the Exodus, or when the Spirit spoke to and inspired the prophets, or when Jesus told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to come to them, which happened at Pentecost, or um, you know that, that Jesus encourages us that the Spirit will be the comforter and advocate, and to which the instructions and sanctification and guidance of the people of God are, ref- are referenced, must also be understood to be this same Spirit. Okay? But if the Spirit is clearly revealed to be a person in the later parts of Scripture, and the Spirit's 
reference comes from Genesis through Revelation in these many different ways. The Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, Spirit of God, my Spirit, things like that. If in the newer revelation of Scripture, New Testament theology, we see the Holy Spirit referenced or manifest at a per, as a person, then it's the same way we attribute the names to refer to the same being. We can attribute this attribute, if you would, to the same being throughout Scripture. I know that was a little convoluted, but simply put, if we can find passages in Scripture that clearly identify the Holy Spirit as a person, then we can apply that principle across the board from Old Testament to New Testament, because God doesn't change. God doesn't change, okay? And we need to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So the more we understand by the reading of Scripture, the more we can apply it to all of Scripture, okay? It is also noteworthy to say that the Spirit of God is equally revealed throughout Scripture. His interventions do not occur on rare occasions, as, for example, the appearance of angels, or theophanies. Theophanies would be, uh, or Christophanies would be uh, Christ appearing in the Old Testament prior to him taking on flesh. Okay, Those are more rare. Whereas the Spirit is mentioned throughout Scripture. Okay? It is not only, however, merely a frequency which the Spirit is mentioned and the prominence given to his person and work, but the multiple and interesting relationship in which he is represented as standing by the people of God. The importance and number of gifts and the absolute dependence of the believer and of the church upon him for spiritual and eternal life, which render the doctrine of the Holy Spirit absolutely fundamental to the gospel. And when I say the gospel, I mean the good news, the good news that God in his mercy sent his son, God the Son, to take on the wrath of God and pay the debt that mankind racked up against God in sin. And the Son of God paid that debt at the cross, and that is good news. And we're going to get into that to really you know, develop the distinctions between the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in redemption, in salvation. Okay? The work of the Spirit in applying these things is essential, as I noted. So this, I believe, is really where the church struggles. At one point just to wrap our heads around the Trinity, <laughs> that within the nature of the one true God, there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each is equal to one another in essence and nature, yet they make up the one true God. So that, that's hard enough, just to wrap your head around that. Then to break it down further, the different persons of the Godhead, if you would, and the role they play in salvation, that is yet a deeper dive into the Godhead and God and theology. And we need to understand all of that, though. We don't necessarily need to become highfalutin theologians, but we definitely need to be theologians, people studying God, 
studying the doctrines of God. So the Father sent his Son to earth to become a man, a bondservant, as Paul states it in Philippians chapter 2. And I quote from Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So clearly the Son of God existed before the Incarnation, or becoming man, taking on flesh, as noted here. Also, reading all of Scripture, you will undoubtedly be acquainted with the fact that um, mankind was corrupted due to sin and destined to die and go to hell. I mean, starting in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 documents the fall of man, uh, Adam and Eve. We need, to, we need a Savior, and no man can save us. We can't save ourselves, nor can we save anyone else. So God himself had to do it, and that is what the Son did. He took on flesh, which is absurdly humble, the Creator becoming like the creature. But this had to be in order for him to represent us before God, as the writer of Hebrews notes. So if we were to quote Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to pick up in verse 17, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, he being Christ, so that he, Christ, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted as well. So according to Easton Bible Dictionary, the word propitiation, it's not a common one that we hear, uh, unless you are one that studies theology. The word propitiation really literally means, and I quote from Easton Bible Dictionary, that by which God is rendered propitious, i.e., by which it becomes consistent with his character and government to pardon and bless the sinner. The propitiation does not procure his love or make him loving. It only renders it consistent for him to exercise his love towards sinners. And I end quote. Now that is a pretty academic definition, maybe a little harder to grasp or, or fully understand. I'm now going to kind of pull on Grudem, Wayne Grudem, uh, and this one is out of his book, Bible Doctrine. Uh, he, quote, uh, he says, and I quote, Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaks of Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood through faith. And that comes out of Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Grudem goes on and says, Paul then explains why God put forward Jesus as a propitiation. That is, a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against sin and thereby God's wrath, uh, turns God's wrath into favor. So, this shows God's righteousness in that he had not punished sin up until that point, 
And had he not, he would not be exercising justice. So Christ paid the debt of sin, satisfying the Father's wrath, which was needed, or we would all suffer that wrath ourselves. Okay, so with that understanding, then enters the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that brings life. From the Pentecost experience documented in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit indwells the believer in Jerusalem some ten days after the ascension of Christ into heaven, we have understood the Holy Spirit's role in salvation as necessary and essential, we as Christians, Orthodox Christianity. When we confess our sins to God and believe in our heart that Christ is God and proved it by rising from the dead after he was crucified for our sins, and we confess that, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is <clears throat> there are a lot of passages in Scripture that we can point to that, that bear this out. Uh, one passage that comes to mind, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. One that I highly rest on is in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 14. It says, Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, which is the promised Holy Spirit. It is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance at the return of Christ. My paraphrase loosely. But having believed, believed in what? That Christ, God the Son, came to earth, lived the perfect life, went to the cross, a, a spotless lamb, guiltless, but yet became sin for us, as Scripture tells us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, but being God, infinite in power, was able to literally pay off the infinite debt that mankind owed God, past, present, and future. He made propitiation so that the Father can now look at us and say, not guilty, and attribute Christ's righteous life to us as it was exchanged, Christ's righteousness was exchanged for our sin, and he paid that on the cross. It is finished, okay? He was crucified for our sins, and this is something that's spiritual and supernatural, and we should experience something amazing when we are at that place of being what is often referred to as born again. We become Christians, Christ followers. We are made new. We are new creations, 1 Corinthians 5. All of these terms refer to this moment that we as human beings, fallen, broken, sinful people, are made new by God. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself. It is an act of God, not by works, lest any of us boast. Okay, so this is a supernatural moving of God, paid the debt paid by the Son, and life brought to us by the Holy Spirit. Okay, remember the passage in Acts when Paul, on his second missionary journey, asks, asks a profound question. We're in Acts chapter 19, 
and I pick up in verse 1. It says, And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard of this Holy Spirit. And Paul said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, and I end the passage there. So the question alone so the question alone shows that if they had received the holy spirit they would have known it because something supernatural has been experienced so when paul asked did you receive the holy spirit when you believed <laughs> the reality is paul knows this is a supernatural transformation from death to life. You should know it. You have just been made alive spiritually by God himself. And that should come with a supernatural awareness of something happening. Okay? Now, how do I flesh that out? How do I develop that without getting wacky or something like that? I'm going to pull on a great brother of ours, John Piper, Pastor John Piper, Dr. John Piper, um, as he laid out, um, I think, very amply uh, the idea surrounding this idea of the coming spirit, okay, and specifically focused on Luke's way of identifying it, uh, Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And I pick up and quote from Piper. It is possible to sum up all Luke's ways of describing the coming of the Holy Spirit. There are seven words or phrases he speaks of, and here are those seven words or phrases. He speaks of the Holy Spirit being given to the people as a gift, the Holy Spirit falling upon people, the Holy Spirit coming upon people, the Holy Spirit being poured out on people, people receiving the Holy Spirit, people being baptized in the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. All these ways of describing the coming of the Holy Spirit are found in six stories or instances in the book of Acts. And in every one, the coming of the Spirit is with an experienced effect. He goes on, at Pentecost, there was speaking in tongues and praising the mighty works of God and power to witness. In Samaria, there was something so obvious in experience that Simon saw it and in his amazement wanted to buy the power to make it happen himself. Now that is uh, this guy, uh, Simon or Simeon, I thought it was Simeon, but it might be Simon, um, 
was not a believer, but he was like a religious guru person that was kind of following Peter around. And he started seeing the Holy Spirit moving through Peter's ministry and went up to Peter and said, hey, I'll pay you for whatever you got so that I can have it. And Peter rebukes him, highly rebukes him. But back to Piper, he's pointing this out. There was something, it's kind of a uh, evidentiary witness, an eyewitness account, this Simon guy that realizes there is something supernatural going on here and I want it. Okay, so there's a Gentile testimony, if you would. Piper goes on, in Caesarea, in the house of Cornelius, there was speaking in tongues and praising God. In Ephesus, where Paul found the disciples of John the Baptist, there was speaking in tongues and prophesying. That was the Acts 19 passage I just read a bit ago. At Paul's conversion, there is extraordinary boldness and empowering to witness. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee and was persecuting the church. And in Acts chapter 9, God calls him, basically. Blows him off his horse. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul basically became one of the staunchest advocates of Christianity against Judaism, as well as going into the Gentile world and being a herald, a powerful herald. Most half, maybe, of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. Very powerful. We go back to Piper. In Acts chapter 5, verse 32, Luke says that God, quote, gave the Holy Spirit to everyone who is obeying him. So obedience to God is a mark of his presence. I continue. Luke expects a real, identifiable experience. So in every case of the Holy Spirit's coming or being received in the book of Acts, there are definite effects that one can point to as evidence that the Spirit has been received. The ones mentioned are speaking in tongues, prophesying, freely praising the great things of God, boldness and power in witness, and obedience to God. And if we, we were to take subsequent empowerings of the Spirit into account after the initial one, the list would, of course, include the working of miracles, signs, and wonders. I continue. At this point, or the point is this, whether Luke expects these kinds of effects to happen in one initiatory receiving of the Holy Spirit or in a two-step process with the baptism in the Holy Spirit after conversion or in an ongoing sequence of fillings or some combination of all three of these, one thing is clear. Luke expects the receiving of the Holy Spirit, however we receive it, to be a real identifiable experience of the living God not just a logical inference from a human act of will. I'll stop there for a moment. I cannot understate, I cannot overstate, maybe is the better way to put it, the point that Dr. Piper is making here. Being a Christian is not an act of will. Truly, being born again is a supernatural act of God upon a human being. We do not make a decision one day, I'm going to be a Christian, and then by the will of your strength, 
you just decide, I'm going to start being Christian. No. You are dead spiritually in your natural state. You and I both, all human beings. And, and quite frankly, if you went down to a cemetery with all these dead bones buried down under the ground, and then you begin to beg them and, and preach to them and talk to them and, and, and sing to them and even offer them money or whatever to come up out of the grave, you won't get one taker. Not one person would rip open the ground and come out of that grave because they are dead. We do not have the power to bring life, but God does. And it's essential that the Spirit of God quicken the heart of the man in order to even recognize their need for a Savior, their sinfulness and their need for a Savior, and to cry out in recognition that God the Son paid our debt and to beg God for that gift. I cannot stress it enough, brothers and sisters, that is the good news. That is the gospel. I continue with Piper. And we can say more about this experience. There is no promise in the book of Acts that everyone who receives the Spirit will speak in tongues or prophesy. But there is a promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that when the Spirit comes upon us, we will receive power. And in this power, we will be able to evangelize the whole world. That promise is made to everybody on whom the Holy Spirit comes, not just a few. Then what we see in the book of Acts are illustrations of what this power looks like as it comes on different groups. It comes with speaking in tongues for some, Acts 2.4, Acts 10.46, Acts 19.6. It comes with the gift of prophecy for some, Acts 2.17, 19.6, It comes with free and overflowing praise of God's greatness, Acts 2.11, 1046. It comes with obedience to the commands of God, Acts 532. It comes with courage and boldness of witness, Acts 214 through 36 and 917 through 22. And it brings the working of various gifts. We see that in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4, and miracles, Galatians chapter 3, 5, and signs and wonders, Acts chapter 6, 8. So now, with that, let's get to the personality of the Holy Spirit. We've now established the essentiality of the Holy Spirit in the process of salvation. We need the Holy Spirit as part of the process of salvation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So let's talk now, as I discussed in the beginning of this, about the personality of of the Holy Spirit is is the you know what's what makes a person a person. Let's start there. Maybe that sounds like a stupid question, but I want to establish a definition before going on to prove the personality of the Holy Spirit. So easy things we could, you know, point at is if a person is called he or she, for example. Or if someone speaks. Maybe um, lying to something. Can you, can you lie to a, a tree? Can you lie to a, a statue? 
Can you lie to a chair? Could you lie to a dog, a cat? The fact is, no, you cannot. You can only lie to a person, a cognizant being. So let's look quickly at a passage from Scripture, using Scripture to give us, you know, God's Word to give us truth. God's Word is truth. We're going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira found in Acts chapter 5. Now, to set the stage, Acts chapter 4 really shows the blossoming church, the first century church. Acts chapter 1, uh, Christ's ascension, 1 into 2, Pentecost, uh, Peter's preaching it like a madman, and people are coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Chapter 3, we move into chapter 4, and we see that the Christian church, the burgeoning Christian church, is beginning to care for one another. So you're seeing people selling property off, selling houses off, and contributing that money to the general fund for the church's benefit. And then we pick up in Acts chapter 5. We'll start in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, kept back part for himself, some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I want to stop right there for a moment. In, in and of itself, in context, there's nothing wrong with that. If you sold a big piece of property and you donated half of that to charity or to the, to the church, there's nothing that, that's written or that God demands that you give it all. Now, I'm speaking in general terms. Now, specifically, God may speak to you and say, I want you to give it all. But in context here, in this uh, Acts chapter 5, there was no rule that if you sold a piece of property, you got to give us every single penny. So something is weird here. So let's continue in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. I'll stop there. Before I dive into the Holy Spirit portion of this, I want to kind of set the stage and help you understand what's going on here. Peter is not upset because the Spirit of God made him aware of the fact that Ananias was lying about the money he got for the property. The issue here is that Ananias appears to be telling everybody, I'm just letting you know, this is all the money I got for the property I sold when in reality, it, is, it wasn't. So he was puffing himself up, making himself look good among the, the church as, oh man, he is a giver of givers type of thing. So it was very prideful and arrogant and uh, deceitful what he was doing. Rather, if he just came and gave 10%, you know, 500 bucks, whatever, and never said a word, just dropped it in the basket and, and moved on, Peter probably would have never said a word. Okay. Now we know that my assessment of what really happened happened because right after what we read happens, uh, Ananias falls down dead. God judges him for lying to him. 
And then immediately his wife comes in and Peter questions her. Was this all the money you got for the sale of the property? So that clearly defines what's going on here. Ananias dropped off the money and said, this is all the money I got for this property and I'm giving it all to the church, kind of a thing. And she goes along with the lie and says, oh, yep, yep, this is all. I mean, she had no idea that her husband had just dropped dead. And then she is confronted and she drops dead. Pretty powerful passage. But let's go back to verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You cannot lie to a chair or a totem pole or a statue or a, an animal, as I said earlier. You lie to a person. But even within this passage, we see a stunning comment out of Peter's mouth. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. I want you to pick that up. Verse 3 says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then verse 4 ends with, You have not lied to men, you lied to God. Clearly, Peter is associating divinity to the Holy Spirit. You've not lied to me. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. God the Holy Spirit. Okay? So not only are we establishing the personality of the Holy Spirit in that you can't lie to a table, but we're also establishing the deity of the Holy Spirit, that he is God, God the Spirit. We can move on to Acts chapter 13, for example, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, Saul who is Paul, Paul the Apostle. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So here we see again a couple things. Number one, the Holy Spirit speaks. A totem pole doesn't speak. A statue doesn't speak. A table doesn't speak. And let's be clear, a dog or a cat or an animal doesn't speak. Now I know there are some of those theologians out there they are going to point me to... The donkey, the speaking donkey in the Old Testament. But let's be you know, clear and understanding. We're hearing God the Holy Spirit speak, the person of the Holy Spirit speak. Okay? But we also see 
separate Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. So now we see God, the Holy Spirit, directing the church and the, the mission of the church uh, in this passage. Okay? This is clearly, if you, if you read through the book of Acts, this is the starting, the kickoff of the uh, mission that God had promised the Apostle Paul when he, can, he called him in Acts chapter 9 to be a uh, messenger to the Gentiles. This is the calling. This is when it finally took place. So between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 13, a number of years had gone by <clears throat> where um, Paul was learning and growing with the, the church proper, Peter and, and so on. Um, but this is a point in which, this is the point at which God starts their missionary journey, missionary journey number one, okay? But again, we're, we're focused on the Holy Spirit, the personality of the Holy Spirit, and the deity of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being God. These are great passages, Acts 5 and Acts chapter 13, to point to not exhaustive, but evidentiary. So remember, his role, the Holy Spirit's role to us is a teacher, sanctifier, someone that makes us holy, sets us apart and makes us holy, comforter and a guide. All bring with it personal, personality, personal being characteristics, okay? A teacher, a sanctifier, a comforter, a guide. The Spirit shows intelligence, will, and activity of power. So he's not just a force. He, he exercises power. He gives gifts. He teaches. He speaks you can lie to him. All of these are evidentiary references to a person, a personality. Okay? I can go on if time permitted. And although this was not intended to be an exhaustive deep dive into the doctrine of the Trinity, into Christ, or into the Holy Spirit, it was my hope that this would help us kind of level set or correct maybe some misunderstandings that, that we have related to these doctrines, and drive us to further study. Some great books that I would highly recommend that you get a hold of. They are still in print. They are pretty uh, commonly understood as authoritative. Um, one more modern book would be from Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M. I will have a link in the description. Uh, Bible Doctrine, uh, or his more academic systematic theology, which I would probably recommend first, uh, but Bible Doctrine is maybe a little easier read for the lay person. Um, I would also highly recommend, um, it's an old older volume, probably well over 100 years old, um, Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology. It's a three-volume set. You could probably get them 25 to 50 bucks. I don't know exactly. Again, I will leave a link in the description. Um, I would also leave a link in the description to a website called Monergism. Um, and in that, uh, there is a kind of a, a bookstore link, uh, which is the one I will be pasting there. And it kind of subclassifies or subcategorizes other great um, reference books and um, volumes, like if a multi-book set of um, systematic theologies and doctrine, uh, doctrinal books, and uh, and so on and so forth. 
that I highly recommend. Not that you just go pour out a bunch of money on these things. There may be opportunities to get these used in certain places. Um, and uh, I'm not all about just having a bunch of books on your shelf, but for your study. Uh, there are also online things like Monergism that you could go to for articles and um, MP3s or um, podcasts, things like that, to be taught uh, in more of a uh, video format or audio format that I highly recommend, not in a way of replacing your Bible study or prayer that the Holy Spirit would reveal these things to you, but as extra biblical study, okay? If you're enjoying the content of this podcast and haven't yet subscribed or followed it, I highly ask you, you know, I encourage you to do that, and I it, it would really benefit me and this channel. Um, there are opportunities to leave comments in many of these, and I do want to encourage you to leave a comment, a question maybe, ideas on content for this podcast. I, I would be open to any of that. You can email me at we can't keep silent at gmail.com all one word and i would love to correspond with you this ministry is not just an isolated thing for me in my closet this is designed to be a dialogue not only with the church but also with those that are seeking those that have come to know come to recognize they are sinners in need of a savior and realize that there is really only one there is only one savior Jesus Christ. And it's through God's grace that we are saved. Through faith. And this is not of ourselves, lest any man boast. Okay? I thank you again. I look forward to having you back. And until next time, be blessed.